Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nikos Katsikanis Show. And today is the first Learn With Us style episode within the show. Today in the show, we have James Hegedus, who is a developer from uh, Australia. How's it going today? Yeah, it's good, thanks, Nikos. How are you? Yeah, pretty good, thanks. Just a nice day in Vienna, nice and some sunshine today. What are you working on today? Um, yeah, so I've been working a lot on uh, integrating SvelteKit with Firebase. Um, the Google Cloud app dev platform. Cool. So for this show, we're going to try and make it accessible for people that are not really um, developers, uh, people that are not programmers. Uh, so the first five or 10 minutes, just to make this sort of legal, we'll talk about um, cloud technologies and um, why companies would choose something like Firebase to develop their, their platforms on if they're like entrepreneurs and things. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, so I guess uh, jumping into the cloud ecosystem. Um, yeah, my expertise is mainly with Google and um, on top of Google, there's a, a company built a platform for app developers um, that kind of tried to take away a lot of the, the hard parts of developing on the Google cloud platform. Um, and, and make it much more accessible for people who only had like uh, front-end application kind of development skills, not the cloud back-end type of stuff. So no server kind of back-end skills were required. And that's why Firebase was created. And then Google acquired them after, um, I believe, five years. And yeah, ever since then, there's been further and further integrations with the particular Google Cloud platform. and. So yeah, it's become quite a uh, popular tool for people who are starting out, yeah, small-ish applications or businesses um, to easily get going quickly with all of their um, front-end application hosting services and then all of the logic about storing data and stuff in the cloud in an accessible way. You think that, companies medium to medium to small size companies are saving money by reducing the complexity of their hiring versus the sort of ex perceived extra cost of running stuff on the cloud versus your own dedicated servers yeah yeah for sure i think um yeah the the, the benefits of using a cloud service like google cloud um or aws or microsoft's cloud um they really, they, they don't really show up on paper initially. Yeah, they, they're a long-term kind of benefit in that you don't have to update your hardware when, you know, five years down the road when your, uh, yeah, internal self-managed services like um, data center kind of hardware, server hardware becomes out of date or um, if there's any hardware failures or anything, kind of those, those kind of costs which are not really calculated at the upfront um, point in time they're the costs that really get saved in the long term so yeah google will constantly be updating the quality of the hardware the performance of the hardware that they have and if there are any failures you as a consumer you do not see any of those um, they kind of automatically fail over to other hardware so it's all this type of management the people that 
manage those types of systems in a data center. Um, yeah, having the downtime from failures, all of those types of things are where the cost savings come in using cloud as opposed to ma managing that all yourself. Yeah. So a lot of people that listen to this show are going to be entrepreneurs that are not technically focused. What advice would you give to them if they're wanting to build their, say they've got 500000 or $200,000 in funding, what advice would you give them to choosing a platform and hiring for this? Yeah, okay. So um, each of the major cloud providers like AWS, Microsoft, and Google, they all have some form of an app platform that's kind of like a um, simplified set subset of their tools. Um, that's definitely where I would start just because those types of tools are meant to um, yeah, simplify and help accelerate um, innovation and uh, mainly get, get you a working product sooner so you can do user testing. Um, another thing I think which people might not be aware of is that uh, each of the cloud providers also have like startup initiatives um, where they kind of, you apply to be in this, their startup programs and they give you X amount of credits to use on their cloud. Um, so yeah, they, they can be very beneficial not having like some of, some of the, um, some of the credit limits that they have given out a, you know, hundred thousand US dollars worth of credits to use on their cloud. Um, so that can be really beneficial when you're just starting out and sure. you don't have to actually think about the costs of your service that you're building for a number of years um, yeah. so you can get more runway to get your product market fit yeah yeah great great answer okay and what about advice for for hiring developers for your startup um yeah so it's a tricky one i think a lot of people um focus on specific technologies these days um, like people are hiring react developers or angular developers on the front end and specifically like google cloud developers or aws developers um, i'd say that most of that doesn't matter if someone's competent in aws they're going to be competent in google cloud there's a there's a few different changes but um that's more just you know that'll come out in the in, in the day-to-day -day work. That's not something that you would need to real specialize in. If someone's good at React, they'll be good at most other front-end frameworks. So yeah, I, I wouldn't hire for specific technology tools. I would hire for like the area in the technology. So front-end versus back-end, um, which is the more traditional way of doing things. Um, but yeah, I, I just find the trend of hiring for specific tech knowledge um, if the person already knows one of the other available tech tools, then they have most of the grasp of the um, underlying tool, like the, yeah, the underlying technology that's backing that tool. So they should be competent in anything else and just, you know, give people some, uh, some leeway to, to, you know, if they are transferring from, you know, being an expert in AWS to Google or vice versa, um, you know, they'll just need a little bit of a runway to begin with, but that's definitely worth it to just help you find people sooner than later. I think a lot of money can be saved by, yeah, 
um, reducing the timeline of the hiring process. Um, so think about all the costs of all the meetings and the people running the meetings um, to go through a rigorous hiring process to hire someone who's specifically good at X when you could have made your process a lot shorter um, and got someone just as capable, but just because you weren't trying to filter down to a particular technology, kind of make the uh, process a bit um, shorter. What do you think of take-home tests for developer positions? Yeah, take-home tests, I think are great. I think they are definitely preferred to any form of whiteboard testing. I'm not a huge fan of that type of interview process. Um, take-home tests are great, as long as they can be done in a reasonable time. Um, I have participated in some take-home tests before that you know, took up to seven hours to do. Um, that was the time limit we were given by the company. So yeah, it's seven hours is a lot of time for someone who is already running a full-time job. They might have families or anything. So it's kind of just uh, keep it short. I think it would be the, the best thing. And, you know, if you, if, if you wanted to do two take-home tests, like um, give the set of candidates one test initially that might only take up to an hour and then give them a separate test to a subset of those groups and just use that to, um, you know, filter out your group to a small set of people. Um, not, yeah, I, I don't think whiteboard testing like especially if you if you're doing a programming test whereby you don't have access to the internet, like you would in a traditional whiteboard test, like that's just so far removed from what your day to day job is that I yeah. it's just I don't understand how the big companies like Google and and Facebook are still doing these types of interview processes. Like it just mm. seems like they've just invested too much into the interview process that they're not willing to give it up. It's like a so why, 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 do you think, why do you think there's a culture of these take-home tests in our profession versus something like doctors or plumbing or lawyers or or cameramen or something like that? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah, do, 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 do people like in other professions like like send people out to do a job as a one-off like introductory as part of their hiring process i don't know <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me I, I i think yeah i don't know i would i would just uh yeah use use uh some method to identify whether or not the person's capable and then just half the time you're better off just hiring someone <laughs> i think and then just uh you know giving them a two-week probation and yeah a, I don't understand it. It's almost like when you're going to a company, you have the burden of proof to prove that you're not lying about your CV or your GitHub. Yeah. Yeah. It's look, I think GitHub is probably the best way to um, if, like, if you have an existing GitHub um, activity, like if you're contributing to an open source project, like on a regular basis or you've created your own and it might only be a little tool that like 10 people use, but if you've already created it and there's a git history there showing that, you know, you've gone through the processes of developing this tool, like, you know, it's not just a single commit, but 
that's commit with bug fixes over time, all that type of stuff. I don't understand why interviews aren't focused on talking about your existing solutions to problems that already exist. Yeah. So yeah, like why, why would you give someone who maintains a large open source project a take-home test? Just get them to talk about the problems they've been facing and talk through some of the pull requests that they've made on GitHub. Like that yeah. is yeah. a way better process, I believe. Yeah. Cool. So now we're going to, well, you, people are welcome to stay along as long as possible, but now we'll have no holds back going into basically hardcore tech stuff. So if people are still not scared about that, I'll, 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 I'll hats off to you, but uh, we're, we're going into tech now. So, <laughs> yeah. So, um, Svelte Kit is uh, the new version of Svelte in a sense that the process is around making Svelte projects and it's evolved from Sapper. So, Svelte Kit is uh, what's called um, f- functions as a service first. Or what's it called again? What do they, what's the term? Uh, I think they were called, they, yeah. Rich called it serverless first. Serverless first. Yeah. Um, with the idea being that that is functions as a service like Lambda and Cloud Functions, etc., mm-hmm. being the target, the deployment target for the application. Yeah. So other server-side rendering frameworks, like for example, Next, um, uh, Gatsby, which is a which is a server-side generation project, they have large pieces of code running and on a server continually. To make all that stuff work, what is it that Rich has done? Rich and the team has done, to be fair, to enable these sort of lightweight serverless backend uh, server-side rendering processes to serve up websites. I think um, the main distinction with SvelteKit from all the other frameworks of the same kind. Um, like Next.js and Gatsby, et cetera. They're, um, I, I think that, yeah, they've, they've identified that the, the server-side component needs to be able to deploy to multiple targets, not just the Node.js environment, which is what all the other frameworks do. They just assume, given it's a JavaScript project, that you're probably going to be running your backend in JavaScript. So that's just a restriction that all these frameworks have baked into their into their solution. So yeah, I think the the acknowledgement of the Svelte, the Svelte teams and not acknowledgement of the growth in the industry in the functions as a service platforms, like for instance, Cloudflare now has their workers. Um, which is their functions as a service product, but it doesn't run Node.js, it runs, I believe, WebAssembly. Um, so yeah, having all of these newer players in the functions as a service realm has kind of um, been observed by the Svelkit team and then they've, they've taken that on board to say, okay, let's not build our framework to run just in a Node.js environment. Let's build it in such a way that we can have these extra components that will adapt our server output for the particular environment. Yeah. I think, I think yeah, it's just the looking at the pipeline, observing the state of 
uh, cloud-based runtimes. Um, yeah, that, that's the main difference. And, you know, they're just starting fresh, whereas all the other frameworks are incumbents have been around for, you know, Next.js, I think it was 2017, so it's four years now. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been a while. So being new and, and then just being aware of the ecosystem of the runtime platforms um, is what I think has driven that main decision. Okay, so you've you've made this Svelte adapter Firebase on your, your GitHub account. What is it that all the adapters share in common in terms of an API surface for hooking into SvelteKit? Yeah, so that is constantly changing and still is because SvelteKit has not been a 1.0 release yet. Um, okay. So essentially what they do is they just accept a... Um, an object, a JavaScript object um, that has a bunch of the common functionality um, baked into that object. So then if you wanted to, for instance, delete a folder during your adaptive adapt process, or you wanted to, you know, just simply log some stuff to the, the CLI, the console of the user running your adapter, it has all of these utilities built into it. Um, most of the existing adapters are pretty similar um, in that they are all, a, a few of them are, are Node.js runtimes, but for different cloud providers. Um, so the Firebase one, for instance, is it does target a Node.js uh, runtime, which in Firebase is run on cloud functions. Yeah, I've um, used cloud functions for Mentor CV. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, that's, I, I find like I'm just, I'm in the Google space myself personally. I, I like the Google products. Um, and yeah, so that's why I ended up developing this one. Um, but yeah, the, the official adapters for Vercel and um, there's just a generic node environment one for if you're hosting on a node server. They're all pretty similar in that the, um, requests that comes into the server side, that logic is essentially the same before it passes it off to the SvelteKit um, server. But the CLI component that actually like interprets how to build for each of these platforms, that's where the differences are. They obviously share the same utilities to achieve that, but um, yeah, like the processes for interpreting the Vercel config file versus the Firebase config file to identify how to output the application. That's where, um, so it can be consumed by the cloud side. That's where they're different. What's Vercel? Uh, Vercel is a, um, it is a cloud platform. It is built by the team that built the company that built Next.js essentially okay. built Vercel. So um, it used to be called Zeit. I've heard of that before. Yeah, I'll just share my. Uh, you could, if you share your screen and go to Vercel.com, um, yeah, you can kind of get a gist of what their their product is. Um, it's built on top of AWS and Lambda. Of AWS. What's AWS? Right, I see. 
and there's a Vercel adapter for SvelteKit. Yeah, so Vercel is meant to be a... Um, so in the, in, in the way that Firebase is an app dev platform for Google Cloud, where it simplifies a whole bunch of stuff, Vercel is an you know, app platform, like a hosting platform um, for your applications. It can integrate with your databases from the various clouds, et cetera. Um, yeah, and, and then this was built by an independent company. So it's not owned by AWS or anything. They, but they're just built on top of AWS. Okay. So, um, so yeah, the team that built Next.js, um, the core maintainers for Next.js are employees of Vercel. And so the whole idea was that we'll make deploying a Next.js application as simple as possible. So I've got your Svelte Adaptive Firebase. Where's the main entry point? I guess source. Yeah, the CLI file. Yeah, okay. that one there. And this is the sort of common API to which SvelteKit understands this export with adapter. Yeah, so it, the file needs to export a, a function that returns an object, I believe. So I think I've kind of broken it out a bit, but if you go to that first function, um, yeah, so see, it, we return line 42, we return an adapter. So that's, yeah. where, that's where we hand back to, um, to SvelteKit, like this is an adapter. And then SvelteKit calls the line 22, the adapt function, passing in the builder object. And then that builder object is common that every adapter gets handed. Um, and that's where, what holds all the utility functions and stuff. This API has changed since um, yeah. this was written because it's still in flux. And um, I think the adapter API is the main focus at the moment for the team um, before they'll be happy marking stuff as 1.0 and doing a proper release. So it's currently in beta. But So it's kind of this, this area here, this line 22 onwards is where the meat of it is. So with each of the cloud providers, they usually have some form of a config file, where in this case, it is um, a firebase.json file. And so we, um, we need to like parse that to understand how the user has set up their Firebase configuration. So then we can output our SvelteKit app in the correct way. Unfortunately, this, as you can see here, there's a whole lot of error checking <laughs> here. Yeah. So Firebase don't maintain their own parser for their own config file. Right. So I've had to essentially write all of the error checking, Dear validation, etc. It's very tedious. If you look at some of the other uh, adapters on the official SvelteKit, repo yeah there's a couple like of them this. that just have yeah they just have arc.pass so arc is a um is a a tool used to deploy aws applications and they have a parsing function that passes their config and it just validates that everything's correct and that all the required fields are there um so firebase doesn't have that so i've 
had to make this mess. Uh, but uh, also wrote a bunch of tests for it. So we can happily change that as things change. Also, there are some other things there, as you can see, like valid cloud run service ID, like there's a particular regex, same with the function name. Um, I found two different validate rules for cloud functions in the Firebase CLI tool. So I've got the links to those there and then I've simplified it because their two different rules are different. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of where some of the headaches come in when you're trying to build one of these. We thought about using TypeScript for this file with the adapter. Maybe they don't have a TypeScript definition for the API for you. They have recently added one. Um, as you can see there, I've got the um, type of the JS docs um, with types. So when you open this in VS code, um, that start that typing at the top of each of the functions is read by um, TypeScripts. Right. And you get the completion and type checking as you code. I've kind of mimicked this from the, um, this is what they've done in SvelteKit as well. They've, they started using TypeScript, but they found because they were moving so fast that um, fixing all the types and making 100% type correct every time was becoming a bit cumbersome. So they reverted back to JavaScript and then introduced uh, JS docs, which is, well, I don't even know if it's the right name for it, um, but essentially it's, yeah, documentation that TypeScript can identify and pick up types from. So that line 19 there is actually an importing from the SvelteKit library, the type for the adapter, and then typing the line 20 adapter object with that type. I'd be um, so surprised if this is supported in WebStorm, this type of... Uh... As I said, it's a bit out of date. Um, I think I've built this for version next, the next release version 54 or something. So it's like the beta version 54. And I think they just released 89 like yesterday. So it's felt kit. Gonna, yeah, I have to update it. There's a few things that changed, but um so yeah, if you hover over, it might it might do it correctly. I need to install the npm install. Yeah, I started using PNPM as well. I had a bit of a Node.js hiatus. And um, when I came back, I started using NPM again. And then I saw that the Svelte team were using PNPM. So I What's gave it special about that again? I've forgotten. Uh, it, it doesn't install a copy of each of the dependencies per project. It installs a symlink to a global cache of everything. So it only installs each package, like node module dependency once, and then just sim links to them. Um, and then that way it maintains just this global set across all your different repos and projects on your local machine. So it installs really quick and it has been very nice. So if I go muck around with this properties, I should get some error on WebStorm. Ah, look at that, that's uh, missing type. Amazing, and that's a JavaScript file, that's, that's great. Yeah, so I've, I've found um, this is the first or second project that I've used this type of typing with. Um, I found it a bit to be a lot nicer because you don't have a build 
step. You still ha install, like you still have a TS config file. You still install TypeScript as a dev dependency, but. Oh, really? Um, yeah, but it doesn't, you don't need it to build your application. There's no. I reckon this could get pretty sloppy pretty quick. I mean, can you imagine if it's optional? Mind you, you're going to have that error there on the console. So. Yeah, like you can still run like the TypeScript check function over your code. Um, yeah, look, it's got so. an error there. It says no adapter, but it's not a build blocking thing. That's that's amazing. I didn't I didn't know that. Yeah, I think this is starting at this type of usage of TypeScript is starting to pick up again. Um, this is kind of how I, what I liked about using TypeScript initially, like, you know, five years ago, or whatever, was that it's, you installed it and it would type your JavaScript, like it would give you your developer tool hints while you were just writing JavaScript. I feel like they've changed some config now where, whereby that doesn't really work with JavaScript anymore. And you have to do this type of stuff to, to get it to interpret stuff. Yeah. So um, is everything running in one cloud function? Because I've, I've used several cloud functions for uh, my own, like Mendo CV. I've got like Node Express type handlers for endpoints. Yes. So the yes, this does um, have everything running in the one function. So essentially the request comes in, in this function that you've got here. Um, the request comes in and then we call the render function um, and that render function comes from app MJS on line eight. Um, uh, that import, that app.mjs file is an output of Svelte Kit's build. Yep. I've so we before. don't have that in our project. So here, yeah? And this one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's essentially that file. So we that exports a render function and we pass in all of our parameters into that function. So the render function in here. Yeah, I think there's one in here. Yeah, it's a big it's, it's a big file. I've looked at this in some of my videos. Yeah, so essentially like they've I think they've changed this yet again. Um, so to be independent of the runtime, this kind of file needs to be platform independent. Yeah. So they've recently refactored it all to not have any Node.js built-in components at all. It's all right. just JavaScript output by SvelteKit. Yeah, and so that way they don't have a they don't have a dependency on any um any runtime. They just it's just JavaScripts. Um, There's a render so yeah. function there with the server side rendering config. Yeah, there you go. That's it. So the first thing is the request, and then it has a whole bunch of other config that we can either override or not. Um, Does your adapter do anything different with SSR? No, it leaves it on true. And what if, if somebody doesn't want to use server-side rendering with your adapter, it's possible? Uh, like, I, if they turn it off in SvelteKit's output, I believe it would still like if, if you're not using server-side rendering, then you should just use the static adapter and then you can still host it on Firebase. Um, 
you just wouldn't need any of this um, handler for your requests or anything because it would be your static application. So, well, why, um, if we could just use static, why would they give us an option to turn SSR off in the and other adapters? Yeah, so there's uh, there's an ongoing discussion about whether or not um, so turning SSR off means not server side rendering it, but you can still return HTML from the templates of this this felt not the felt templates but just the raw html of the page that's generated um yeah. so this is kind of where i think each of these types of frameworks are getting a bit um a bit large so i had this problem with nuxt which is the view type of framework like this app framework um so svelte has felt kit next uh, react has nextjs and then Vue.js has Nux.js. So those are the major ones. So there's the, the UI library and then there's the app framework. Um, they all have the ability to do some form of client-side rendered only, server-side rendered and client-side rendered mixed together or completely static files, which doesn't have any client-side or server-side rendering. Yeah. Um, and so they're adding options for each of those three things. So you can toggle them independently um, and then produce applications that might be all client-side rendered, served and hosted on uh, functions as a service platform like Cloud Functions. And then um, yeah, when you hit the server, it's kind of the same as doing a... Um, a full render every time of the whole platform or the whole application instead of the single page being re-rendered. I know it's it's confusing for myself and I may have got that all backwards, but uh, pretty much the only reason you would use uh, SvelteKit with this adapter is if you want to do server-side rendering. Um, if you want to do static, then you can do static. The reason for doing server-side rendering is entirely, you know, up to the the type of application you're building. Um, so I haven't enabled the ability to toggle that option in my adapter. How expensive do you think SSR within Firebase could become? Because you're hitting that cloud function a lot, I'd imagine. Well, so it depends on, on how you want to handle it. Um, so Next.js, they uh, identify like the type of route that you have and you can also configure it to, um, so they identify it and give it cache headers depending on what type of resource it is. So if it's a static resource, it'll be cached with a one year long, um, expiry time and it'll be like an immutable resource etc to, to take advantage of the cdn um and you can configure each of the resources as well per route to have different cache headers and the same is true with svelte um you can essentially set the cache headers for your routes um 
So then that way the CDN caches the result and you're not hitting the function all the time. Um, like, yeah, it's, it just depends on the frequency of access and update to the particular page, how you may or may not want to cache that page and for how long. Um, so yeah, I haven't uh, looked into quite yet the level of um, assumption that SvelteKit does and what cache headers it already adds to your resources. But that may be something like, obviously with any application, you're going to want to configure those per route. So we need to identify either how the user configures that or how we expose that through the adapter. Yeah. So the moment I'm doing everything from main to CV using, uh, just using an SPA and that basically gets all its data from static pages and, and the data comes from Firebase. So yeah. I'm just worried in case like I'm going to have the data coming to, so I'm paying the data coming from Firebase to the cloud function and I'm paying for the cloud function invocation as well as to, to get the, the page instead of just getting the, the page data every all the time from uh, from CDN. Yeah. So this is, you'll have noticed that the readme of my project is very large. And this is kind of where um, developing this with Firebase is pretty unique versus the other platforms. Um, so the, there's a, a few things going on here. One is that Google as a Google cloud as a raw platform has multiple um, functions as a service products. So they have cloud functions and then they also have cloud run. Um, so cloud functions is the traditional, very much like Lambda. Um, it identifies, you know, functions that you want to do a single task um, and it comes with a runtime, etc already out of the box. Whereas with Cloud Run as a service, uh, you can, you it's a Docker runtime. So it's like one step lower than a cloud function. You can give it a Docker file and you can say, hey, I wanna run this Docker file. And then that Docker file has to have, you know, whatever tools and services you're using built into it to serve your application. Um, and it needs to be able to handle requests, et cetera. Um, so the way that like the way that Google support cloud functions is essentially via cloud run with a couple libraries on top of it. Um, as you see there at the bottom of the pages, for those interested, um, cloud run support is with the same JS code as the cloud functions. So that handler JS file is the same, depending like if, if you use Cloud Functions or Cloud Run. Um, and we just use, uh, yeah, some functions framework stuff, which is the, the Node.js. Yeah, so the functions framework is the tool that Google use to provide their Cloud Function runtimes. So they have one for, they announced PHP the other week, they have, Ruby, they have C-sharp, Python, Node.js, um, 
and a couple others. I think there's seven or eight in total. And so essentially, um, yeah, Cloud Functions is Cloud Run, but the Node.js version of Cloud Run using the Node.js functions framework. And that's how we support it here. Now, the reason why you would want to have your application running in Cloud Run versus Cloud Functions is because Cloud Run as a service has a lot more features available to you. So um, one of them being that a Cloud Run service by default can handle 80 concurrent requests. So with a Cloud Function, when you get a request coming into your function, that one, the function gets spun up to execute that request. If you get two requests at the same time, then you'll need two cloud functions because a cloud function can only handle one request at a time. So if you get two requests come in sequentially, one after the other, that'll only be one cloud function handling each of the requests because it'll handle new ones after when it's free, after it's been started. But if you get like concurrent requests, that's when they need to spin up multiple cloud functions to handle your data or your, your requests. Whereas with Cloud Run, it can handle concurrent requests. So the one instance of the of Cloud Run can accept um, up to 80 requests by default at, at the same time. So what that means is the processing of those requests is kind of overlapped and you have less uh, execution time, billable execution time, uh -huh. because you're able to handle the load of the requests in an overlapping fashion. Um, and so a lot of people use Cloud Run to mitigate cold starts because of the fact that it can handle multiple requests and so you need fewer instances and the chances of an instance being available is higher, um, et cetera. So um, yeah, that's, that's, that's why I've chose to support Cloud Run as well. Um, I find the, yeah, I find the, the idea of how it's packaged together a lot nicer than how Firebase packages functions as well. So um, that's where- Are you using on Google Cloud Deploy to deploy the functions or are you using something like the Google Cloud build language? So with the, so yeah, and this is, this is where things start getting a bit hairy with all of <laughs> Firebase. So Firebase has its own CLI and you run deploy and that will upload your functions, your uh, CDN resources, um, like your security rules, etc. Yeah. So this is built to still be used to still use that. However, when you use Cloud Run, um, you need to deploy like Firebase doesn't know how to deploy Cloud Run yeah. services. Um, as you can see in that first bit of code, there it says um, rewrites. So this is kind of how Firebase supports. Um, yeah, having functions or Cloud Run serve requests. Um, so we've essentially said with this rewrite is that for any request with the double star for the source there, we're going to redirect that request to 
our cloud run service with the service ID called my site SSR. Yeah. And so you need to, with, with Firebase, you need to have already deployed that cloud run service for it to be able to um, successfully deploy it because it will check that a service exists with that my site SSR name that you've referenced. So yeah, yeah, this is, this is where I think, yeah, cloud function uh, Firebase has a lot of work to do in their ergonomics. Would you like pay to do this or do you just do this on your own back? I, I, I wanted to use um, Firebase to host my SQLkit app because that's where all my stuff is. Right, right. Okay. Um, so I decided to build it and I'm not paid, but uh, given the detail that you need to know to, to start with this kind of stuff, it's... Uh, Google, you should hire this guy or I'll send them some cookies. Yeah, it's, it's good my job overlaps. So. <laughs> Jeez, when you people on Google Cloud are working on this like full time, these kind of complicated things, you know. So, yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> like one one last thing I'll add to this is that um, I've kind of it's it's I I was initially recommending everyone to use Cloud Run to host instead of Functions, but um, Functions has become lot nicer to use in the last six months why is that um well say in that functions versus run table there i have uh the firebase emula integration oh this is a big thing yeah so firebase has a local emulator that you can run now and host your whole application on um and you can like develop against it locally it's really nice yeah yeah um and it you know they even have a Firestore database locally and all that type of stuff. Yeah, I've used it. I've used them both, all of them. Yeah, all the emulation. Yeah, it's 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 a great product and it's what everyone wanted Firebase to be, you know, five years ago, and <laughs> they got there. It's good. It's good. Kudos to the team. I'm sure it was terribly difficult to do. Um, I was an alpha tester. So yeah, that's kind of why I recommend that now. Pardon. I was an alpha tester for the Firebase emulation emulator. Yeah, yeah. Being in those groups is, is very helpful. Um, that's another thing I'd recommend any any um, entrepreneur starting their company to do is be part of any of the alpha groups because, yeah, there could be a new feature coming down the pipeline that might save you a whole lot of work. So. Um, yeah, it got to a point when I was developing this that I'm like, oh, someone's going to request that we handle custom Docker images and all this type of stuff. So I was like, let's put non-goals in here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's quite a lot of, look at the commits in here. Sheesh. Ah, uh, yeah. Some of those should have been squashed. No, but it's all good. Sorry. I mean, it's, uh, it's history. This is a lot of work, man. I've seen adapters. It's like three or four commits. This is a pure... Yeah, well, so I, I was developing it to test it myself, and I also started, as you can see, I think it was in December last year. Yeah. Uh, no, January fourth of Jan. So they were way back, I think, at like version twenty or something when I started, and now they're at version ninety of the beta. So I was there, there's been a lot of changes in, in between that, like going going to from Common JS to. Um, ESM and back and 
um, yeah, the adapter API changed pretty significantly. So I kind of, I probably shouldn't have jumped in that early. It's my own fault. Yeah. <laughs> so if this is, this is Mentor CV. So this is an, an SPA Svelte app running on rollup with a normal Firebase configuration, as you nice. can see. If I was to use your project, I just, in a sense, convert my project over to Svelte kit and use your adapter and what well, I'm good to go. Yeah, so if you open up your Firebase JSON, I think this is the, the, the key thing that my adapter does that none of the other ones seem to do, um, is that we, we read this config file um, to identify like in your, uh, do you have any functions? Yeah. Do you scroll up to the, yeah, so scroll up in the config to the function section. Um, yeah, so you, you've got the source as the functions folder. So that could be that's line seven there. You could you could put the source anywhere on your file system. Yeah. So we come in here and we read this source value to identify where your functions are, um, and then we output the Svelte kit function alongside your existing ones okay. in the build directory. Great. Um, so then that way, when you do Firebase deploy, it's already there next to it. Okay. The other thing that we do is, I don't, yeah, like because Firebase, um, yeah, they, they make you have all of your functions in one folder with a single entry point. Yeah. Um, so if you could just open your entry point up, yeah. So there's a single entry point and a lot of people, so this is this is where a lot of people do a lot of different stuff because it's just JavaScript, right? But essentially this file, Firebase reads all these exports, traverses the, um, the import tree to find your, the functions, HTTPS or, you know, Firestore triggers for your functions, et cetera. Um, and then creates a function for each of them. Now, because everyone can create a completely separate um, like index file for all of their functions, uh, we output to our CLI. When, when you build your Svelkit app with the Firebase adapter, it will tell you what code to add into this file here. Um, instead of injecting the code in, Okay. The pur purpose of doing that is so that you can, um, yeah, wherever your index is, however you have it managed, you just need to add these like 10 lines of code. Um, okay. It's just copy and paste from the CLI. Um, and then that should only be done like the one time essentially. And then as you rebuild your app, you, you really won't need to change that. Um, so the ergonomics is like not quite as ergonomic as using some of the other adapters. Yeah, it's um, complicated stuff, man. It's just it's hard enough just writing yeah. it without trying to hook into all these projects, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it gets real hard. And one one thing that I'm still need to work on is the when you build your functions with TypeScript. So I see that you've got all of your functions built with TypeScript. Yes, I, I use TypeScript which, for that. Yeah. Yeah. So that means your functions folder has a source directory and then when you build it it probably has a lib directory as well so one of the things that we need to do 
in our adapter is we need to conf we have to identify okay is the person running like is their source code um written in javascript or typescript because if it's written in typescript we want to output the build in this lib directory not in the source directory <laughs> so yeah it's just yet another level of the, definitely um, need to get sponsorship mate i think it's not sustainable <laughs> yeah, yeah. man well it's 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 nearly there i've got a few people who've submitted some prs now so it seems like other other users are wanting to yeah, this is great work. Google, Google needs to support this somehow because uh, if Svelte becomes as popular as I think it's going, it's becoming, and and they managed to pull off this server-side serverless first type framework, then you know Google wanna 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 have some slice of that money that's coming coming in from new companies, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I see now it's got you know eighteen stars on, on GitHub. So it's yeah, like I gave you a star today, man. That's, that's your that's your wages for this podcast, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. How do people get in touch with you? Uh, yeah, mainly just via on my GitHub. Like I've got my email on there. I was uh, I jumped on the the hay bandwagon, and uh, so I've got my my email there. So in the bottom left, hey. so anyone oh. can. Um, and essentially, yeah, I'm just always either I'm doing some Firebase or Google related work or some um, Svelte related stuff as it is now with the adapter. And uh, yeah, and then you can see all the other projects that I'm working on on, on GitHub. Yeah. Cool. Anthony, you want to share more about the adapter or Svelte kit? Um, yeah, I think uh, everyone stay tuned because I'll need to do a, a big update to the adapter soon. Um, that'll be coming over the next few days. And then, uh, yeah, just supporting the Svelte kit team. The Svelte team, I think, is also really valuable because I feel like, yeah, the, the work that they're doing is going to drive the next, you know, four or five years of front end stuff in the same way that. React has for the last really, five man. years. That's yeah, good. it's it's good for Svelte developers. <laughs> yeah, they, look, they've just got the right balance of so many things, which is and the developer experience between using Svelte, Svelte Kit, and any of the other available tools is just night and day. Yeah, so it's yeah. quite ridiculous. So I mean, this whole like Svelte ad thing is great. You know, you have to think about how to add Tailwind. Like it was just like trawling through. GitHub. Yeah, the Svelte ad is was also yeah really really nice um i think yeah one of the main distinctions i want to uh, bring everyone's attention to with the firebase adapter is that like firebase as a product has always been about static like single page apps and connecting your database um directly from the client not via a back-end http request like that's one of the main innovations of Firebase is their like client side connection to the database and their like so Firestore and real time DB yeah and having all of that managed from the client device to the server by Firebase yeah so I wouldn't I wouldn't go down the like yeah putting um, putting database calls and stuff on your server side rendered pages is 
definitely going to work out somewhat faster, but it's not going to take advantage of the Firebase platform. So yeah, and why, yeah, why would I've you got need to do that because like you're going to use the same data anyway from your read writes. Yeah, yeah. So I, I I would highly recommend like Svelte Kit to build your application and then the Svelte Adapter Firebase to host your application, but in each of your application pages, um, I would take advantage of the Firestore database and not do the um, like type of, yeah, the, uh, the type of traditional REST request to get data in the backend yeah. SSR calls, um, which because might mean that you you can see here that I'm just, and this is this is the back end within the actual single page application. So this is basically calling Firestore, getting my feed, getting users posts. Yeah, it's like that's the innovation for Firebase. That's yeah. where you're going to get your value from using the Firebase platform is yeah. using this like the Firestore library because like it then hooks into the security rules, which hooks into the auth that's yeah. already all there and built for you. I wouldn't yeah. rebuild all of that in your SSR page pages i would ssr i would generate as a service i rendered page like only public content essentially yeah for me this, this is user content be implemented via firestore like this yeah and and for example my profile pages at the moment the metadata is everything in the index page so there's nothing special if you send somebody a link to your profile what i want is a server-side rendered function that gives me that yeah, yeah, which you can yeah, you can certainly get that quite easily. Um, yeah, and like again, the user will have an up-to-date response. Um, yeah, like that. Sorry, the the response they will get from your server-side rendered page will be quicker than getting the page once and then having to do a call to Firestore once the JavaScript loads and getting the data back. Like it's definitely going to be quicker doing SSR, but I think you just need to be strategic about where you invest the time to do that versus um, like to to do the data fetching in the SSR versus yeah. using Firebase for what Firebase is built for. Um, there's another new new product just came a feature came out today yesterday or something from Firebase with regards to Firestore, which is being able to ship to your clients, like um, you can CDN cache a bundle of um, a bundle of data. So I think they called it Firestore bundles. Uh -huh. If you were to Google that, you might find it. It's on the Firebase blog, the announcement, but essentially it's um, Firestore results for your queries cached on their CDN. So I don't know how that all fit into this as well, but it's definitely. It's yeah, not easy, it. man, trying to work your head around all the different things. It's even just one platform is hard enough trying to keep up with, man. So. Yeah, I think that's where the value of platforms like Vercel come in um, because it's pretty minimal. Um, they just host, yeah, they host your app. It's, it's SSR or single page and then you hook into the data, but yeah. So this is this is a new feature that's come out. Um, I am not yet sure how valuable 
it will be for people to integrate into their apps and if I need to do anything in this felt adapter to handle this type of stuff. But it's yet another consideration that people have to take. I think, yeah, the word of warning is that all these services have a great set of features. You don't have to use them all. Just build your service and if it's, you know, if, if you could have a page be optimized by 200 milliseconds, like identify if, if that's a problem for your users before you invest the time to do it. Mm. Um, the Firebase performance monitoring is got to be one of the best features about the platform. So um, would highly recommend people use that to identify their problems. So like if I was to use um, caching, like this here is, is, a, is a live profile of who I'm connected to. Um, yeah. But basically, if if some if if Yuho removes me as a mentee, I don't want to come to my profile and he's still my mentor. So how how do I invalidate this cache? What, what kind of heuristics and stuff? Yeah, I think that's one of the areas that Firebase with their CDN has been a bit um, lackluster. Is that they they don't the Firebase CDN is built upon fastly which is not a google product right um and they don't expose cache invalidation functions to their users um which would be you know the thing you're suggesting would be terribly easy to do yeah if they expose those those uh calls to the consumers but yeah you can't currently perform cache invalidation of yeah. the Firebase CDN, like within your code, you can only yeah. do it within um, when you do a redeployment essentially. So you would have to reproduce your bundle of your Firestore resources and upload it again to the CDN is my guess. So like, I mean, like what's this that's coming from real time database. So I don't want to read real-time database at the moment at the moment when they visit this page it was a read on real-time database every single time and that's I'm, that's going to get expensive at some point so that's basically what i want to avoid so i wish there's a way to cache to, to cache this data and then tell when it's not cached when they remove me as a mentee or something like that yeah that that would be nice i don't yeah i i don't know uh, that's on their roadmap to do any stuff like that because this this app bundles Firestore bundles they're talking about are only for like the first request to that set of data. Yeah. So I, you would have to refresh that cache, but then subsequent requests would still occur um, when the data changes in Firebase. So it's, yeah. I think um, one of the when, you, when you're talking about Firestore, it's the cost optimization and cost optimizations like this. I think um, you'd need to identify the the usage of those particular reads um, to identify if they're going to actually be a problem cost-wise. It's not yeah, cost-wise, no problem because I don't have met that enough users to cause any problems. You know, so yeah, yeah. Well, so this is this is where a lot of uh, a lot of small businesses get a bit ticked off with Firebase is they, they go into <laughs> use Firebase um, and it's great and they get up and running really quickly yeah. and then they scale 
like fire and firebase is built to scale for any number of users like yeah. google run products on it um so like yeah people have problems where their app blows up overnight and they had some quirky read and write um usage in their application and then all of a sudden they've got a giant bill um so yeah, yeah you definitely need man. to well yeah you need to you need to go into your um account and like create budget alerts and um yeah all these types of things so and, and monitor monitors is the main one as well yeah monitor yeah i have monitoring yeah i've talked i've talked a little bit about firebase team about uh, denial of service attacks you know those kind of things and they've pretty much said that if you get if you get a ddos attack or a botnet they'll they'll cover the cost apparently yeah yeah so google google protects um all of the Firebase cloud APIs in the same way they do their Google cloud APIs. And that all uses the same, like, same level of protection as like Gmail and stuff. Um, so yeah, like your app will still get hit, but they'll still cover the costs. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, don't quote me on that, but most people who've ended up in a hard place have either done so of their own volition or Google have helped get them out of the hole they're in. So, yeah. I think the way Google makes money is typically just normal business income from business processes. I don't think they're making money from little guys getting DDoSed. <laughs> no, not at all. They're, they're making all their money from, from all the ads. <laughs> I, think, I think most of Google's revenue is still all and so it's got to be clear as well there's a difference between google the company and google cloud firebase is part of google cloud um so like yeah google and google cloud are different companies <laughs> but you know they're all under alphabet so if one has a bad quarter then it doesn't end the world for them as a business mm. cool well james it's been a fascinating interview i uh I've learned a lot. I can't say that I'm more excited about using Firebase Adapter now, but I'm definitely no more, which is the, the point of this interview. And you've done a great job with really you. Congratulate you. If anyone wants to reach out, of course, you can see the details now on, on your show on the show notes in the video. So yeah, thanks for your time. No problem. Thanks for having me, Nicholas. It's been great. Um, yeah. Any anyone wants more information, reach out to me on the internet and uh Hope to see some pull requests come in to fix some of the uh, issues. <laughs> Great. Okay, everybody, that was the first Learn With Us in the new Embedded into the Nico Kessikani show. We hope you like that one. I hope that people that are not technical, well, all people that are still listening are going to be technical. But so I, I applaud you if you're still here. But anyway, that's today's episode. Thanks very much, everyone. Until next time, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>